0: Section 12 of Coningsby, or the New Generation, by Benjamin Disraeli. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 3, Chapter 5 My fathers periled their blood and fortunes for the cause of the sovereignty and Church of England, said Lyle to Coningsby, as they were lying stretched out on the sunny turf in the park of Beaumanoir, and I inherit their passionate convictions. They were Catholics, as is their descendant, no doubt they would have been glad to see their ancient faith predominant in their ancient land, but they bowed, as I bow, to an adverse and apparently irrevocable decree. But if we could not have the church of our fathers, we honoured and respected the church of their children. It was at least a church, a Catholic and apostolic church, as it daily declares itself. Besides, it was our friend. When we were persecuted by Puritanic parliaments, it was the Sovereign and the Church of England that interposed, with the certainty of creating against themselves odium and mistrust, to shield us from the dark and relentless bigotry of Calvinism. "'I believe,' said Coningsby, "'that if Charles I had hanged all the Catholic priests that Parliament petitioned him to execute, he would never have lost his crown.' "'You were mentioning my father,' continued Lyle. "'He certainly was a Whig.' Galled by political exclusion, he connected himself with that party in the state which began to intubate emancipation. After all, they did not emancipate us. It was the fall of the papacy in England that founded the Whig aristocracy, a fact that must always lie at the bottom of their hearts, as, I assure you, it does of mine. "'I gathered at an early age,' continued Lyle that I was expected to inherit my father's political connections with the family estates. Under ordinary circumstances, this would probably have occurred. In times that did not force one to ponder, it is not likely I should have recoiled from uniting myself with a party formed of the best families in England, and ever famous for accomplished men and charming women but i enter life in the midst of a convulsion in which the very principles of our political and social systems are called in question i cannot unite myself with the party of destruction it is an operative cause alien to my being what then offers itself the duke talks to me of conservative principles but he does not inform me what they are i observe indeed a party in the state whose rule it is to consent to no change unless it is clamorously called for and then instantly to yield but those are concessionary not conservative principles this party treats institutions as we do our pheasants they preserve only to destroy them but is there a statesman among these conservatives who offers us a dogma for a guide or defines any great political truth which we should aspire to establish it seems to me a barren thing this conservatism an unhappy crossbreed the mule of politics that engenders nothing what do you think of all this coningsby i assure you i feel confused perplexed harassed i know i have public duties to perform I am, in fact, every day of my life, solicited by all parties to throw the weight of my influence in one scale or another, but I am paralysed. I often wish I had no position in the country. The sense of its responsibility depresses me, makes me miserable. I speak to you without reserve, with a frankness which our short acquaintance scarcely authorises. But Henry Sidney has so often talked to me of you, and I have so long wished to know you that i open my heart without restraint my dear fellow said coningsby you have but described my feelings when you depicted your own my mind on these subjects has long been a chaos i float in a sea of troubles and should long ago have been wrecked had i not been sustained by a profound however vague conviction that there are still great truths if we could but work them out that government for instance should be loved and not hated and that religion should be a faith and not a form the moral influence of residence furnishes some of the most interesting traits of our national manners the presence of this power was very apparent throughout the district that surrounded Beaumanoir. the ladies of that house were deeply sensible of the responsibility of their position thoroughly comprehending their duties they fulfilled them without affectation with earnestness and with that effect which springs from a knowledge of the subject. The consequences were visible in the tone of the peasantry being superior to that which we too often witness. The ancient feudal feeling that lingers in these sequestered haunts is an instrument which, when skilfully wielded, may be productive of vast social benefit. The duke understood this well, and his family had imbibed all his views and seconded them lady everingham once more in the scene of her past life resumed the exercise of gentle offices as if she had never ceased to be a daughter of the house and as if another domain had not its claims upon her solicitude coningsby was often the companion of herself and her sister in their pilgrimages of charity and kindness he admired the graceful energy and thorough acquaintance with details with which lady everingham superintended schools organised societies of relief, and the discrimination which she brought to bear upon individual cases of suffering or misfortune. He was deeply interested as he watched the magic of her manner, as she melted the obdurate, inspired the slothful, consoled the afflicted, and animated with her smiles and ready phrase the energetic and the dutiful. Nor, on these occasions, was Lady Theresa seen under less favourable auspices without the vivacity of her sister there was in her demeanour a sweet seriousness of purpose that was most winning and sometimes a burst of energy a trait of decision which strikingly contrasted with the somewhat over-controlled character of her life in the drawing-rooms in the society of these engaging companions time for coningsby glided away in a course which he sometimes wished nothing might disturb apart from them he frequently felt himself pensive, and vaguely disquieted. Even the society of Henry Sidney or Eustace Lyle, much as under ordinary circumstances they would have been adapted to his mood, did not compensate for the absence of that indefinite, that novel, that strange yet sweet excitement which he felt, he knew, not exactly how or why, stealing over his senses. Sometimes the countenance of Theresa Sidney flitted over his musing vision. Sometimes the merry voice of Lady Everingham haunted his ear. But to be their companion in ride or ramble, to avoid any arrangement which for many hours should deprive him of their presence, was every day with Coningsby a principal object. One day he had been out shooting rabbits with Lyle and Henry Sidney, and returned with them late to Beaumanoir for dinner. He had not enjoyed his sport, and he had not shot at all well. He had been dreamy, silent, had deeply felt the want of Lady Everingham's conversation that was ever so poignant and so interestingly personal to himself, one of the secrets of her sway, though Coningsby was not then quite conscious of it. Talk to a man about himself, and he is generally captivated. That is the real way to win him. The only difference between men and women in this respect is that most women are vain, and some men are not. There are some men who have no self-love, but if they have, female vanity is but a trifling and airy passion compared with the vast veracity of appetite which in the sterner sex can swallow anything and always crave for more. When Coningsby entered the drawing-room there seemed a somewhat unusual bustle in the room, but as the twilight had descended it was at first rather difficult to distinguish who was present. He soon perceived that there were strangers a gentleman of pleasing appearance was near a sofa on which the duchess and lady everingham were seated and discoursing with some volubility his phrases seemed to command attention his audience had an animated glance eyes sparkling with intelligence and interest not a word was disregarded coningsby did not advance as was his custom he had a sort of instinct that the stranger was discoursing of matters of which he knew nothing he turned to a table, he took up a book, which he began to read, upside-downwards. A hand was lightly placed on his shoulder. He looked round, it was another stranger, who said, however, in a tone of familiar friendliness, "'How do you do, Coningsby?' It was a young man about four-and-twenty years of age, tall, good-looking. Old recollections, his intimate greeting, a strong family likeness, helped Coningsby to conjecture correctly who was the person who addressed him it was indeed the eldest son of the duke the marquis of beaumanoir who had arrived at his father's unexpectedly with his friend mr melton on their way north mr melton was a gentleman of the highest fashion and a great favourite in society he was about thirty good-looking with an air that commanded attention and manners though facile sufficiently finished he was communicative, though calm, and without being witty, had at his service a turn of phrase acquired by practice and success, which was, or which always seemed to be poignant. The lady seemed especially to be delighted at his arrival. He knew everything of everybody they cared about, and Coningsby listened in silence to names which for the first time reached his ears, but which seemed to excite great interest. Mr. Melton frequently addressed his most lively observations, and his most sparkling anecdotes to Lady Everingham, who evidently relished all that he said, and returned him in kind. Throughout the dinner, Lady Everingham and Mr. Melton maintained what appeared a most entertaining conversation, particularly about things and persons which did not in any way interest our hero. Who, however, had the satisfaction of Lady Everingham in the drawing-room say, "'in a careless tone to the Duchess. "'I am so glad, Mama, that Mr. Melton has come. "'We wanted some amusement.' "'What a confession! "'What a revelation to Coningsby "'of his infinite insignificance! "'Coningsby entertained a great aversion for Mr. Melton, "'but felt his spirit unequal to the social contest. "'The genius of the untutored, inexperienced youth "'quailed before that of the long-practiced, "'skilful man of the world.' What was the magic of this man? What was the secret of this ease, that nothing could disturb, and yet was not deficient in deference and good taste? And then his dress, it seemed fashioned by some unearthly artist, yet it was impossible to detect the unobtrusive causes of the general effect that was irresistible. Coningsby's coat was made by Stults. Almost every fellow in the sixth form had his coats made by Stults. Yet Coningsby fancied that his own garment looked as if it had been furnished by some rustic slop-seller. He began to wonder where Mr. Melton got his boots from, and glanced at his own, which, though made in St. James Street, seemed to him to have a cloddish air. Lady Everingham was determined that Mr. Melton should see Beaumanoir to the greatest advantage. Mr. Melton had never been there before, except at Christmas, with the house full of visitors and factitious gaiety. Now he was to see the country. Accordingly, there were long rides every day, which Lady Everingham called expeditions, and which generally produced some slight incident, which she styled an adventure. She was kind to Coningsby, but had no time to indulge in the lengthened conversations which he had previously found so magical. Mr. Melton was always on the scene, the monopolising hero, it would seem, of every thought and phrase and plan. Coningsby began to think that Beaumanoir was not so delightful a place as he had imagined. He began to think that he had stayed there perhaps too long. He had received a letter from Mr. Rigby to inform him that he was expected at Coningsby Castle at the beginning of September to meet Lord Monmouth, who had returned to England, and for grave and special reasons was about to reside at his chief seat, which he had not visited for many years. Coningsby had intended to have remained at Beaumanoir until that time, but suddenly it occurred to him that the age of ruins was past, and that he ought to seize the opportunity of visiting Manchester, which was in the same county as the castle of his grandfather. "'So difficult it is to speculate upon events.' Muse as we may, we are the creatures of circumstances, and the unexpected arrival of a London dandy at the country seat of an English nobleman sent this representative of the new generation, fresh from Eton, nursed in prejudices, yet with a mind predisposed to inquiry and prone to meditation, to a scene apt to stimulate both intellectual processes, which demanded investigation and induced thought, the great metropolis of labour. End of chapter five. End of book three. Book four. Chapter one. A great city whose image dwells in the memory of man is the type of some great idea. Rome represents conquest. Faith hovers over the towers of Jerusalem. And Athens embodies the pre-eminent quality of the antique world-art. In modern ages, commerce has created London while manners, in the most comprehensive sense of the word, have long found a supreme capital in the airy and right-minded city of the Seine. Art was to the ancient world, science is to the modern world, the distinctive faculty. In the minds of men, the useful has succeeded to the beautiful. Instead of the city of the violet crown, a Lancashire village has expanded into a mighty region of factories and warehouses. Yet rightly understood, Manchester is as great a human exploit as Athens. The inhabitants, indeed, are not so impressed with their idiosyncrasy as the countrymen of Pericles and Phidias. They do not fully comprehend the position which they occupy. It is the philosopher alone who can conceive the grandeur of Manchester and the immensity of its future. There are yet great truths to tell if we had either the courage to announce or the temper to receive them end of chapter one chapter two a feeling of melancholy even of uneasiness attends our first entrance into a great town especially at night is it that the sense of all this vast existence with which we have no connection where we are utterly unknown oppresses us with our insignificance is it that it is terrible to feel friendless where all have friends yet reverse the picture behold a community where you are unknown but where you will be known perhaps honoured a place where you have no friends but where also you have no enemies a spot that has hitherto been a blank in your thoughts as you have been a cipher in its sensations and yet a spot perhaps pregnant with your destiny there is perhaps no act of memory so profoundly interesting as to recall the careless mood and moment in which we have entered a town a house a chamber on the eve of an acquaintance or an event that has given colour and an impulse to our future life what is this fatality that men worship is it a goddess unquestionably it is a power that acts mainly by female agents women are the priestesses of predestination man conceives fortune but woman conducts it it is the spirit of man that says i will be great but it is the sympathy of woman that usually makes him so it was not the comely and courteous hostess of the adelphi hotel manchester that gave occasion to these remarks though she may deserve them and though she was most kind to our coningsby as he came in late at night very tired and not in very good humour he had travelled the whole day through the great district of labour his mind excited by strange sights and at length wearied by their multiplication he had passed over the plains where iron and coal supersede turf and corn dingy as the entrance of hades and flaming with furnaces and now he was among illumined factories with more windows than italian palaces and smoking chimneys taller than egyptian obelisks alone in the great metropolis of machinery itself sitting down in a solitary coffee-room glaring with gas with no appetite a whirling head and not a plan or purpose for the morrow why was he here because a being whose name even was unknown to him had met him in a hedge ale-house during a thunderstorm and had told him that the age of ruins was past remarkable instance of the influence of an individual some evidence of the extreme susceptibility of our hero even his bedroom was lit by gas wonderful city that however could be got rid of he opened the window the summer air was sweet even in this land of smoke and toil he feels a sensation such as in Lisbon or Lima precedes an earthquake. The house appears to quiver. It is a sympathetic affection occasioned by a steam-engine in a neighbouring factory. Notwithstanding, however, all these novel incidents, Coningsby slept a deep sleep of youth and health, of a brain which, however occasionally perplexed by the thought, had never been harassed by anxiety. He rose early, freshened and in fine spirits. And by the time the deviled chicken and the buttered toast, that mysterious and incomparable luxury, which can only be obtained at an inn, had disappeared, he felt all the delightful excitement of travel. And now for action. Not a letter had Coningsby, not an individual in that vast city was known to him. He went to consult his kind hostess, who smiled confidence. He was to mention her name at one place, his own at another. All would be right. She seemed to have reliance in the destiny of such a nice young man. He saw all. They were kind and hospitable to the young stranger, whose thought and earnestness and gentle manners attracted them. One recommended him to another. All tried to aid and assist him. He entered chambers vaster than are told of in Arabian fable and peopled with habitants more wondrous than afrit or peri for there he beheld in long-continued ranks those mysterious forms full of existence without life that perform with facility and in an instant what man can fulfil only with difficulty and in days a machine is a slave that neither brings nor bears degradation it is a being endowed with the greatest degree of energy and acting under the greatest degree of excitement Yet free at the same time from all passion and emotion. It is, therefore, not only a slave, but a supernatural slave. And why should one say that the machine does not live? It breathes, for its breath forms the atmosphere of some towns. It moves with more regularity than man. And has it not a voice? Does not the spindle sing like a merry girl at her work, and the steam-engine roar in jolly chorus? like a strong artisan handling his lusty tools and gaining a fair day's wages for a fair day's toil? Nor should the weaving-room be forgotten, where a thousand or fifteen hundred girls may be observed in their coral necklaces, working like Penelope in the daytime, some pretty, some pert, some graceful and jocund, some absorbed in their occupation, a little serious some, few sad, and the cotton you have observed in its rude state, that you have seen the silent spinner change into thread and the bustling weaver convert into cloth, you may now watch as in a moment it is tinted with beautiful colours or printed with fanciful patterns. And yet the mystery of mysteries is to view machines making machines, a spectacle that fills the mind with curious and even awful speculation. From early morn to the late twilight our coningsby for several days devoted himself to the comprehension of manchester it was to him a new world pregnant with new ideas and suggestive of new trains of thought and feeling in this unprecedented partnership between capital and science working on a spot which nature had indicated as the fitting theatre of their exploits he beheld a great source of the wealth of nations which had been reserved for these times and he perceived that this wealth was rapidly developing classes, whose power was imperfectly recognized in the constitutional scheme, and whose duties in the social system seemed altogether omitted. Young as he was, the bent of his mind and the inquisitive spirit of the times had sufficiently prepared him not indeed to grapple with these questions, but to be sensible of their existence and to ponder." one evening in the coffee-room of the hotel having just finished his well-earned dinner and relaxing his mind for the moment in a fresh research into the manchester guide an individual who had also been dining in the same apartment rose from his table and after lolling over the empty fireplace reading the framed announcements looking in the directions of several letters waiting there for their owners picking his teeth turned round to coningsby and with an air of uneasy familiarity, said, FIRST visit to Manchester, sir, my first gentleman traveller, I presume I am a traveller, said Coningsby, hm, from south, from the south, and pray, sir, how did you find business as you came along? Brisk, I dare say, and yet there is a something, a sort of something, didn't it strike you, sir, that there was a something, a deal of queer paper about, sir. I fear you are speaking on a subject of which I know nothing, said Coningsby, smiling. I do not understand business at all, though I am not surprised that being at Manchester you should suppose so. Ah, not in business? Hm. Professional? No, said Coningsby, I am nothing. Ah, an independent gent? Hm. And a very pleasant thing, too. Pleased with Manchester, I dare say, continued the stranger and astonished said coningsby i think in the whole course of my life i never saw so much to admire seen all the lions have no doubt i think i have seen everything said coningsby rather eager and with some pride very well very well exclaimed the stranger in a patronizing tone seen mr burleigh's weaving-room i dare say oh isn't it wonderful said coningsby "'A great many people,' said the stranger, with a rather supercilious smile. "'But after all,' said Coningsby, with an animation, "'it is the machinery without any interposition of manual power that overwhelms me. "'It haunts me in my dreams,' continued Coningsby. "'I see cities peopled with machines. "'Certainly Manchester is the most wonderful city of modern times.' The stranger stared a little at the enthusiasm of his companion and then picked his teeth of all the remarkable things here said coningsby what on the whole sir do you look upon as the most so in the way of machinery asked the stranger in the way of machinery why in the way of machinery you know said the stranger very quietly manchester is a dead letter a dead letter said coningsby dead and buried said the stranger accompanying his words with that peculiar application of his thumb to his nose that signifies so eloquently that all is up you astonish me said coningsby it's a booked place though said the stranger and no mistake we have all of us a very great respect for manchester of course look upon her as a sort of mother and all that sort of thing but she is behind the times sir and that won't do in this age the long and short of it is, Manchester is gone by. I thought her only fault might be that she was too much in advance of the rest of the country, said Coningsby innocently. If you want to see life, said the stranger, go to Staleybridge or Bolton. There's high pressure. But the population of Manchester is increasing, said Coningsby. Why, yes, not a doubt. You see, we all of us have a great respect for the town. It is a sort of metropolis of this district, and there is a good deal of capital in the place. And it has some first-rate institutions. There's the Manchester Bank. That's a noble institution, full of commercial enterprise. Understands the age, sir. High pressure to the backbone. I came up to town to see the manager today. I am building a new mill now myself at Staleybridge, and mean to open it by January. "'and when I do, I'll give you leave to pay another visit to Mr. Burley's weaving-room "'with my compliments.' "'I am very sorry,' said Coningsby, "'that I only have another day left. "'But pray tell me, what would you recommend me most to see "'within a reasonable distance of Manchester?' "'My mill is not finished,' said the stranger musingly. "'And though there is still a great deal worth seeing at Staleybridge, "'still you had better wait to see my new mill.' and bolton let me see bolton there is nothing at bolton that can hold up its head for a moment against my new mill but then it is not finished well well let's see what a pity this is not the first of january and then my new mill would be at work i should like to see mr burleigh's face or even mr ashworth's that day and the oxford road works where they are always making a little change bit by bit reform not a very particular fine appetite i suspect for dinner at the oxford road works the day they hear of my new mill being at work but you want to see something tip-top well there's millbank that's regular slap-up quite a sight regular lion if i were you i would see millbank millbank said coningsby what millbank millbank of millbank made the place made it himself about three miles from bolton "'Train tomorrow morning at 7.25, get a fly at the station, and you will be at Millbank by 8.40.' "'Unfortunately, I am engaged tomorrow morning,' said Coningsby, and yet I am most anxious, particularly anxious, to see Millbank.' "'Well, there's a late train,' said the stranger. "'3.15, you will be there by 4.30.' "'I think I could manage that,' said Coningsby. "'Do,' said the stranger.' and if you ever find yourself at Stalybridge, i shall be very happy to be of service i must be off now my train goes at nine fifteen and he presented coningsby with his card as he wished him good-night mr g o a head staleybridge chapter two